Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm covering the famous Queen Catherine de' Medici. Though she's had something of a mixed reputation for a few centuries now, recent historians have been doing a bit of reclamation on this polarizing queen. She's remembered as a powerful leader and devoted mother, but also as a poisoner and a central figure in the French wars of religion. For this episode, I'm relying heavily on the 2003 biography of Catherine by Leonie Frieda, which I really recommend checking out if you're interested. It's over 400 pages long and goes into much more depth than I'll be able to here. But before we jump into Catherine's life and how she became the most powerful woman in 16th century France, I want to give a huge thank you to all the paying subscribers on Substack who make this podcast possible. Y'all are the best and this podcast wouldn't be possible without you at all. If you want to support Unruly Figures and my mission to make interesting history free, you can do that at unrulyfigures.substack.com. Becoming a paying subscriber will also give you access to exclusive content, merch, and behind-the-scenes info on the podcast. Alright, let's hop back in time. Caterina Maria Romula de' Medici, or as we know her, Catherine de' Medici, was born in Florence, Italy on Wednesday, April 13, 1519. Her parents were Lorenzo de' Medici, Duke of Urbino, and Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne, a kinsman of King Francis I of France. Catherine's birth was immediately marked by loss. Her mother died on April 28th when Catherine was just 15 days old. Though previously young and healthy, Madeleine was killed by puperal fever, a type of sepsis caused by birthing assistants not washing their hands before helping a woman give birth. A week later, Catherine's father died, probably of a combination of syphilis and tuberculosis. Side note, some records have her father dying before Catherine's birth. It's unclear which is correct. Um, so then, at just three months old, Catherine fell desperately ill for several weeks. No one was sure that this baby would survive, and they kind of thought that this line of the family was over. Before I get into what happened to Catherine next, let's go through some set pieces that will help kind of set the tone for this entire two-part episode. First of all, the Medici family was a prominent merchant family in Florence, then an independent city-state. The family specialized in the markets of wool, silk, precious metals, and spices, though they, quote, appropriated the martyred physicians of saints Cosmas and Damien as their patron saints, probably to lend them the air of credibility that the medical field held even then. In the 14th century, they had risen up to become papal bankers, and the decimating effect of the Black Plague that same century hugely benefited the Medici family. They had a reputation for philanthropy and a love of art. They pushed forward the narrative of patronizing art as the ultimate symbol of wealth and forward thinking. According to the Catherine biography Leonie Frida, quote, the Medici played an indispensable role in the process which produced the Italian Renaissance. The family motto was Le Temps Revient, or Our Time Will Return, which probably bolstered Catherine through her intense life. 
Nevertheless, this kind of upstart, nouveau riche, almost like grasping reputation of the Medicis hadn't quite faded by the time Catherine's father, Lorenzo, married Madeleine. His marriage to even a minor member of the French royal family was a big deal because it finally gave the family the legitimacy they had long been craving. That intermingling of the blood, while less surprising to us today, I mean, both living British princes married quote-unquote wealthy commoners, was a very big deal then. So the second set piece, um, you've probably heard of Niccolo Machiavelli and his little book called The Prince. The book is a famous repudiation of traditional moral leadership in favor of real politics, summed up in the phrase, the ends justify the means. Machiavelli wrote the book while in exile and looking for a pass kind of back into Italian society. He dedicated it to Catherine's father, hoping to ingratiate himself with the Medicis a full six years before Catherine was even born. But the book would end up being a curse on her. There, the book's association with autocracy and cruelty was established early, and it would be used by Catherine's enemies throughout her life to discredit her. And the attacks started early. <laughs> third set piece. Catherine's great uncle through her father was Pope Leo X. He was well-educated but prone to many of the vices that plagued leaders of the Catholic Church, including extravagant spending. When Martin Luther posted his theses in 1517, Leo did not recognize it as the first shot in a war that would ultimately split the church. He saw it as, quote, a monkish squabble over doctrine and kind of largely ignored it, leading to kind of the ongoing religious wars between Protestants and Catholics that really dominated Europe during this time. Okay, so with those set pieces in place, we can make a little more sense of what happens next to Catherine. Her health recovered at just five months old, and the little Duchessina, as the people of Florence called her, was moved to Rome. Pope Leo made her Duchess of Urbino with the intention of eventually marrying her to an illegitimate cousin that he had named Ippolito. Together, the couple would rule Florence. But, you know, first, she had to grow up. She was initially sent back to Florence to live with her grandmother, Alfosina Orsini. Unfortunately, her grandmother died soon after, and before she was even a year old, Catherine was moved again into the home of her aunt, Clarice Strozzi, who would become something of a surrogate mother for her. Clarice's own young children became like Catherine's siblings, and she would, quote, love them with prodigiously for the rest of their lives, end quote. When Leo X then died in 1521, the family consolidated into a more cohesive unit in Florence, desperate to hold on to power without the prestige of papal backing. Just a few years old at this point, Catherine lived in luxury at the Palazzo Medici. Just her inheritance from her mother landed her among the richest young women in Europe, not to mention the Duchy of Urbino that she was, you know, technically in charge of. In the background, ongoing wars between Francis I of France, her mother's cousin, and Charles V of Spain were starting to spill over into Italian territory. Meanwhile, Lutheranism was spreading at an astonishing speed throughout German territories bordering Italian lands, and the new Pope, Clement VII, was not dealing with the conflicts well. A defeat at the Battle of Pavia in 1525 left Rome, Florence, Pope Clement, and Catherine at the mercy of Charles V. He lost control of his troops, and in May 1527, they sacked Rome, destroying sacred relics and murdering citizens and cardinals alike. Later that month, they moved on to Florence and managed to take Catherine hostage. I want you to remember the Battle of Pavia in 1525, because it's going to come back. She was taken to the Santa Lucia convent in San Gallo, a place known for antip antipathy to the Medici family. 
Later that year, the French ambassador to the Papal States visited her and protested over the, quote, disease-ridden hovel and insisted that Catherine must be relocated immediately, end quote. I guess they all suddenly remembered that she was also like a distant relative of the King of France and obliged. Just eight years old at the time, Catherine was in prison for three years at the convent of Santa Maria Annunziatia della Marate. And if I'm pronouncing all of this wrong, I'm so sorry, I don't speak Italian. <laughs> the convent protected her as much as it imprisoned her. Back in Florence, citizens raged against the Medici, destroying all reminders of the family's wealth. During this rioting, Michelangelo's famous statue, David, lost his left arm. The Medicis were a patron of Michelangelo, and the statue is displayed outside the seat of the Florentine government in the Piazza della Signoria, where it was very vulnerable to attack. Michelangelo was still alive at the time, but it's actually not clear to me if he carried out the statue's repairs, as they seem to be of lower quality than the original statue. But that's, you know, kind of beside the point. Many of the nuns at the Murate convent were of high birth themselves. The convent had a reputation as sort of a calm refuge for elderly, wealthy women to retire from the world after their husbands died and their children were grown. So Catherine was both educated and spoiled here. It was at Murate that she learned, quote, her graceful deportment, her enchanting manners, the ability to charm in conversation, and the strength of mind to keep her own counsel. These all hugely served her for the rest of her life. She also learned the traditions and ceremonies of the Catholic Church while living in this convent, but as we'll see later, it seems like she wasn't really educated in actual theology, which would not serve her. For her late, like her late uncle Leo, Catherine's lack of understanding of Catholic doctrine and Protestant issues with it would really come back to haunt her. In 1529, the increasingly desperate rebel army focused on Catherine again. They had been outmaneuvered by an alliance between Pope Clement and Charles V, who had agreed to restore Medici power in Florence. Still temporarily in control of Florence, the rebels tried to decide what to do with Catherine. I'm sure several plots to simply assassinate her were discussed. What does survive are two increasingly disgusting plans, each as cruel and horrible as the other. One was to lower the 11-year-old quote, naked in a basket in front of her own city walls in the hopes that she'd be kind of accidentally killed by her own allies' gunfire. The other idea was to take her to a military brothel where she'd be forced into prostitution so that, and I quote, any valuable marriage plan by the pontiff would be spoiled forever, end quote. I'm not sure what part of this I find more disgusting, the actual plan to leave an 11-year-old child vulnerable to sexual assault, or the logic behind doing so. If you watch the TV show Rain, Queen Catherine tells a version of the story to Queen Mary after the younger queen is raped. But even in that famously dramatic show, the details are not as gruesome as what was planned in real life. Fortunately, neither of these plans won out, though Catherine was forcibly taken from the convent on the night of July 12, 1530. Fearful that she was going to be executed, she cut her hair and put on a nun's habit, and when soldiers came to take her away, she announced that she was a bride of Christ and couldn't be removed from the convent. When they still insisted, Catherine is said to have cried out, quote, Holy Mother, I am yours. Let us now see what excommunicated wretch would dare drag a spouse of Christ from her monastery. She refused to take off the habit, so she rode back to the St. Lucia convent on the back of a donkey in the outfit, subject to a crowd openly advocating violence against her. While it's easy to imagine that she was harmed in this flight, we actually know that she wasn't, largely because later, when Clement retook Florence, Catherine interceded in the trial of the soldier who had escorted her on this this terrifying journey. His name was Aldo Brandini, and she had his death sentence commuted to exile, which is, you know, a big reprieve. It's hard to imagine that she would have done that for someone who hadn't kept her safe. 
And as we'll see, Catherine always remembered who was kind to her and who wasn't. Around this time, Catherine was described as, quote, small of stature and thin and without delicate features, but having the protruding eyes peculiar to the Medici family. She would never be described as beautiful, but she did have a certain elegance to her that made her attractive. Now freed from the violence of the uprising, Catherine lived with her great-aunt Lucrezia Salviati. Her previous guardian, Clarice Strozzi, had died during childbirth while Catherine was held hostage at the convent. It was probably around this time that she acquired a love for art and architecture that would stay with her for the rest of her life. We don't know much about how Catherine spent this time, though we can assume like her education was at least continued. History isn't really even sure what she studied, though. Greek, Latin, and French were a given, and she also grew up to be, quote, a keen mathematician, an interest that would have coincided well with her later love of astrology, end quote. But again, we don't have, like, a lesson plan for her education at this time. Now 12 or 13, Catherine's future marriage became a pressing matter. She, of course, had little say in the endeavor, though she did have the Pope in her corner. King James V of Scotland was temporarily considered, but Pope Clement couldn't see how this would benefit himself. Classic. That left James to marry Marie of Guise, who would later give birth to Mary, Queen of Scots. The Prince of Orange was also considered as a husband for Catherine, but he was killed in yet another military campaign to capture Florence. The Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, wanted Catherine to marry the Duke of Milan, a quote, somewhat dim-witted man, prematurely aged at 37, sick and broken, not a particularly gleaming matrimonial prospect, end quote. The Pope was seemingly at a loss for a while. Could there be no good prospects for Catherine? Then Francis I made a startling proposal. Why not marry Catherine off to his second son, Henry, Duke of Orléans? The Pope quickly agreed. It should be noted that Francis's motivations were clear. He was very interested in gaining territory in the Italian peninsula, and he used their marriage contract to secretly gain control of Pisa, Parma, Piacenza, Reggio, Modena, and Leghorn. Though Henry was the younger son, this was a huge catch for Catherine, who, as I mentioned earlier, was emphatically not considered royal. Even though her mother Madeline was a distant kinsman of Francis, it was a very distant relation. Madeline was a daughter of the House of Bourbon, a cadet branch of the royal family under the Valois ruling branch. Catherine was rich, sure, but that wasn't the same as being royal, and so this was an enormous step up for her and the entire Medici family. Such a big leap, really, that Charles V, the Holy Roman Empire, refused to believe that this was a realistic possibility. It said he was, quote, amazed when the marriage was announced. No wonder the Pope, like, leapt to make it happen. While all this negotiating was going on, though, Catherine had followed under the, quote, enchanting spell of Ippolito de' Medici. You might remember his name from earlier when there was talk of marrying the two of them so that they could rule Florence. He was a cousin of hers, and he's remembered as incredibly handsome, tall, lithe, dark hair. He, quote, had a penchant for theatrical adornments, dressing with diamond aigrettes and jeweled scimitars, end quote. After her years of terror and captivity, this fun-loving, good-looking guy was a great change of pace, and rumors flew about the couple. Keep in mind, Catherine is like 13 years old, and he's probably about like 20 or 21. 
It's easy to imagine her having like a classic girlhood crush on this handsome, older, but like, I mean, still young guy. And if there, and if this were happening today with like a girl having a crush on like her English teacher, hopefully nothing would come of that. But because of her status in Florence, Ippolito, who saw ruling Florence as his rightful place as the oldest male in the family, Ippolito encouraged her crush and clearly had ambitions to marry her and become ruler of Florence. Of course, this caused Pope Clement alarm. To stall any ambitions he had, Ippolito was unwillingly made into a cardinal and then basically paid off to forget Catherine and move away to Hungary as part of the Vatican's power structure there. This allowed Clement to keep negotiating a marriage to Henry, which would be a much better marriage for Catherine and for the Pope. We might as well talk a little about Henry, Duke of Orléans. According to biographer Leonie Frida, Henry's childhood was, quote, at least as traumatic as Catherine's. His mother died when he was five, a fact we'll do a little armchair psychoanalysis on later. Soon after his mother's death, his father, Francis I, suffered an absolute military disaster that eventually led to Henry and his older brother Francis being held captivity in Spanish court. Now, this is that same military disaster that had led to, like, uh, Catherine being held in captivity in a convent. Like, this is all the same war that's going on that is affecting all of these young children. And obviously, this seems cruel to us, and no doubt the young boys felt it was cruel, or at least very scary, to be sent to be prisoners while their father made moves to honor the Treaty of Madrid. As Frida points out, Francis I probably actually had little choice in the matter. His wife and father were dead, his sons were very young, and his mother was very ill. There was no one who could effectively rule as regent of France at this point and raise the money that he needed to honor the treaty obligations of his loss. In order to get France back on track, he had to return, and in order to return, the Spanish requested the one thing Francis couldn't abandon or renege on, his eldest sons. Any other family member or piece of land, he could have abandoned or started another war to get back, but his eldest sons were too precious to risk that way, because without them, the monarchy was unstable. It seems like Francis's choices were to trade his sons for his own freedom, or risk France becoming part of Spanish territory, which would have, of course, altered history significantly. So the boys went into captivity in March 1526 and weren't released until July 1530. In that time, the two boys were kept in increasingly squalid conditions and were treated terribly by their jailers. In September 1529, an usher of the French Queen Mother Louise went to see the boys in Spain. The man, Bowden, is said to have wept in despair when he found them. The children had grown into two adolescents with stunted growth from bad nutrition and lack of exercise. Henry especially seemed changed. He'd once been, quote, a lively, intelligent boy, but had been transformed by his ordeal into a withdrawn and quiet youth, end quote. The cruelest part was that their father quickly became impatient with his gloomy sons when they returned to court and began ignoring them in favor of his third son, Charles, Duke of Angoulême. Obviously today, I think we'd recognize that the boys came back from Spain deeply traumatized, but their father didn't really have patience for this. Now back at French court, his mother dead and his father ignoring him, Henry found a father figure in the soldier and courtier Montmorency. Henry would come to depend on him for the rest of his life. And that's kind of key, so just remember that in the back of your head. I know there's a lot of kind of moving parts and characters here. 
Soon after his return, Francis I began the negotiations for Henry's marriage. He initially discussed marrying Henry to Mary Tudor, the first daughter of Henry VIII by Catherine of Aragon. It was when those talks collapsed that Francis turned his eye to Catherine de' Medici. As I already mentioned, their marriage was negotiated and announced pretty quickly. Once it was decided that Catherine was going to marry Henry, Pope Clement decided that Catherine's dowry and trousseau, that is, all her belongings that she'd take with her to France, should befit her new status as a princess of France. The family ordered such enormous quantities of lace, gold, jewels, and cloths to make sumptuous clothing for her that the Duke of Florence had to levy a 35,000 ecu tax on the Florentines to pay for it. It's hard to estimate exactly how much that's worth today, but an ecu right before the French Revolution in 1789 had a purchasing power equivalent to about like 28 euros today. So this tax that the Duke of Florence raised is probably worth over a million euros today, which, which is about 1.1 million in US dollars. Again, this is all just clothes and jewels and lingerie for Catherine to take to France. It's worth noting that included in this trousseau were seven enormous pear-shaped pearls, which alone were said to be, quote, worth a kingdom. Many years later, Catherine would gift those pearls to Mary, Queen of Scots, when she became Queen of France. Mary eventually would take them back to Scotland with her after she was widowed, and then Elizabeth I seized them when she took Mary's prisoner. After she had Mary executed, Elizabeth apparently wore those pearls for the rest of her life, quote, without a blush. Today, the pearls are part of the British imperial state crown. In addition to this trousseau, the bride and groom exchanged life-size portraits of themselves, which was traditional. Catherine's was painted by Giorgio Vasari. At one point while he was painting her, he stepped out of the room, and Catherine apparently picked up a brush and painted over his work, making herself look Moorish. Despite the fact that this created a lot more work for him, Vasari found this precocious behavior from the 14-year-old girl so charming that he remained devoted to her for the rest of his life. He's quoted saying, I adore her, if I may say so, as one adores the saints in heaven. Catherine departed for France on September 1st, 1533. She arrived in the harbor at Marseille as part of a veritable armada of ships on October 11th. Since the wedding was to take place basically immediately in Marseille, the city had undergone a huge transformation for the celebration. In fact, an entire neighborhood was raised to make way for a temporary wood palace for the Medicis to stay in. Among the guests of the Medici family and the Pope was Ippolito, who Catherine probably still nursed a little crush on. His new role as cardinal did not change his, quote, dramatic sartorial inclinations, and he apparently was the center of a lot of admiring attention as he and his pages entered Marseille. Despite landing in Marseille on October 11th, Catherine didn't formally enter the city until the 23rd. Dressed in gold and silver silk and riding a horse dressed in gold brocade cloth, she dazzled the residents. Likewise, Catherine was impressed by Henry's appearance. Since his release from captivity, he had grown tall and muscular, he had dark brown hair, brown eyes, a straight nose, and a clear complexion. Though he reputedly still was often quiet and moody, I mean, he too was a 14-year-old suffering through complex trauma, so makes sense. Henry still participated in the jousts and dances to celebrate their wedding. They were married on the 28th of October, so and the celebrations were absolutely raucous. After the ceremony, they had a banquet, then a masked ball. After the young couple left for the night, the ball became a literal orgy. I won't go into too much detail, but there's good documentation of what happened while Catherine and Henry consummated their marriage in the next room. <laughs> Celebrations continued for a few days. Then the French court, which Catherine was now part of, began to make their way back north. 
Pope Clement's final bit of advice to his niece was, quote, a spirited girl will always conceive children. Little did he know that the couple would end up having a lot of trouble conceiving for a while. After his departure, Catherine got to know her new family, especially her sisters-in-law, Marguerite and Madeline. Predisposed to being amiable and happy with where she'd ended up, Catherine quickly won over most of her in-laws and a lot of French court. However, she and Henry didn't spend much time together. Though things seemed great, Catherine's happiness was short-lived, and a lot of the rest of her life would end up being a struggle for survival. This wedding was basically just, you know, a nice reprieve after a rough childhood. In fact, problems started almost immediately. Pope Clement died 11 months later with the promises he'd made to Francis and Catherine's marriage contract largely unfulfilled. France hadn't gained the territory they'd been promised and her dowry was only half paid. The new Pope refused to honor his predecessor's promises and so the alliance they negotiated for was null and void. Now politically worthless, Catherine's value to Francis practically vanished overnight. Moreover, the French had a tendency to resent Italians in kind of like a classically French way. They wore Italian fashion and loved Italian art, but otherwise despised Italians. They tended to regard the entire nation as untrustworthy, quote, money-grabbing opportunists who would slip a knife between a man's shoulder blades as soon as his back was turned, end quote. Catherine, as an Italian with no dynastic backing, was seen as something of a usurper, and she probably felt very vulnerable and alone. Her saving grace amid all this hostility is that Francis I ended up adoring her. Catherine, aware that her safety at court lived and died by his favoritism, made sure to amuse him, hunt with him, and dance with or for him. Additionally, she made friends with the king's chief mistress, Anne, the Duchess de Tamp, and this king's sister, Queen Marguerite of Navarre, who took Catherine under her wing. Around this time, Catherine is credited with introducing two Italian inventions to France, the side saddle and pantaloons, an early form of underwear. The two went hand in hand, in fact, as Catherine wanted to ride better while also protecting her modesty. Until this time in France, women usually sat on horseback in something called a sambu, which was really just like a, like a cumbersome armchair that didn't permit women to ride any faster than like a stately walk. Unfortunately, Catherine was not growing any closer to her husband. While she had been taken with him right away, Henry was rarely more than civil to her. Part of this stemmed from his lack of attraction to her. The other was due to her closest with the Duchess of it, the Duchess de Tamp, who had a bit of a rivalry with Henry's own favorite. Now, as promised, there's a facet of Henry's life that I want to do a little armchair psychoanalysis on here. So, when Henry was six years old and sent to Spain to replace his father as captive of Spanish court, there was a whole entourage of nobles who accompanied the two princes to the handoff. Among them was a 25-year-old woman who showed, quote, particular concern and tenderness for Henry. Obviously moved by the children's plight, she kissed the little boy on his forehead, bidding, bidding him farewell. End quote. This woman was Diane de Poitiers, who later would become Henry's lifelong mistress. Diane was known for being beautiful, elegant, and extremely virtuous. Unlike other female courtiers, she never wore makeup, which probably helped preserve her natural good looks because she wasn't smearing like mercury and lead on her skin all the time. When Henry came back from Spain several, like four years later, she was tasked with trying to get him back up to speed with court life. Henry grew to love her first as a surrogate mother, though as he grew into his teen years, that love definitely transformed into something more obsessive. For example, in 1531, when he was 12, his stepmother, Queen Eleanor's coronation took place. 
The entire family wore her colors to honor her, except Henry, who wore Diane's colors. This is kind of the medieval equivalent to wearing a t-shirt that says, I heart Diane. This set people talking, and they kind of never stopped. Given what we know about Henry, it's not surprising to me that he fell in love with Diane. His parents abandoned him, his mother unwillingly, we can assume, since she died. And he became, it seems to me, very careful to cultivate the love of other, like, older adults around him at the expense of relationships with people his own age. I mean, this episode isn't about him, so I'm not going to go too deep into this, but as we'll see, his preference for people much older than him, who could be a mix of parent and friend or lover, ended up really impacting his relationship with Catherine, as well as his ability to rule France for the rest of his life. Henry, it seems, never fully moved past this, like, need for parental love that he hadn't gotten as a child. And Diane, initially rivals with King Francis's chief mistress Anne, eventually became the chief rival of Catherine. Most historians assume that Diane and Henry had not become lovers before his marriage to Catherine. He was 14, after all, and she was 33. But she was ambitious, and like Ippolito, who couldn't help but encourage someone young and more powerful to love him, Diane would soon seek to further ensnare Henry. The change came probably in the fall of 1536. On August 2nd of that year, the Dauphin of France, Henry's brother Francis, played a game of tennis. After, he felt hot and breathless and asked for water. Immediately after drinking it, he collapsed, developed a high fever, and had difficulty breathing. He died on August 10th at just 18 years old. It was incredibly unexpected. It was also the beginning of Catherine's terrible historical reputation. You see, the Dauphin's death was so sudden and unexpected, most people assumed he had been poisoned. The man who had brought him the water, Sebastian de Montecuccelli, was an Italian, a man that Catherine had brought with her when she moved to France. His rooms were searched and a book on toxicology was found. He was arrested and under torture admitted to poisoning the Dauphin. People assumed he was in the pay of either Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain, or Catherine herself. Montecuccelli, for what it's worth, accused the emperor, but he retracted his confession before his execution. He was executed on October 7th in, I mean, the most gruesome way possible. His limbs were tied to four horses, which were then whipped and tore him to pieces when they galloped in different directions. Realistically, the Dauphin probably died from tuberculosis or pleurisy. The glass of cold water is a red herring. Someone something that people fixated on because poison was, at the time, both untraceable and preferable to the tragedy of an 18-year-old just dying. As we all know, confessions under torture aren't exactly sound. Moreover, the Dauphin's health had never fully recovered from his imprisonment in dank cells in Spain. It was a tragedy, but it probably wasn't an assassination. After all, no one really benefited from his death except Henry and Catherine, so it remains the first of many dark clouds that hangs over Catherine's historical reputation. Upon his brother's death, Henry automatically became the Dauphin of France and Catherine the Dauphin. They were both 17 at the time. Francis reportedly called Henry to his side, saying, quote, Do all that you can to be like he was, surpass him in virtue so that those who now mourn and regret his passing will have their sorrow eased. I command you to make this your aim with all your heart and soul." End quote. If it wasn't clear before, Francis and Henry were not close. In addition to the threat to her reputation that this change in status held for her, Catherine faced another issue at this point. Children. 
After three years of marriage, she had yet to get pregnant. This had been less of an issue when they were not in the immediate line of succession, but at the Dauphine, Catherine needed to have children or risk being set aside. She began to urgently try to conceive, but Henry left on a military campaign in Italy. While there, he fathered a child with another woman, proving, quote-unquote, conclusively, that the quote-unquote problem in their childless marriage was with Catherine, not him. That baby was named Diane de France, after Diane de Poitiers. The birth mother lived in a comfortable convent for the rest of her life, and Diane de Poitiers raised the baby. In fact, the baby was so adored by Diane that rumors abounded that it was actually hers by Henry, and that Philippa Ducci, the actual mother, was made up. These rumors weren't true, but they hurt Catherine even more. The rumors also, however, provided the backdrop for the historical alteration by the TV show Reign, where Diane de Poitiers does have a child with Henry, who is older than Catherine's oldest son. This is also when it's assumed that Diane's relationship with Henry finally became sexual. She had long insisted to him that their relationship needed to remain platonic, but clearly changed her mind. Why is unclear? Was it just because she finally saw 17-year-old Henry as a man, no longer a child? Did his affair with Philippa trigger some sort of jealousy in her? Was it because he was now the Dauphin and being the chief mistress of the future king would be an incredible position for her? We don't know. It could have been some combination of all three of these things. We just know that around this time, Diane wrote an opaque poem about, quote, having submitted, which everyone kind of assumes meant that she had finally slept with Henry. Their affair was not a secret. Henry had a monogram that interlaced the H and Ds of their of their names together and put it all over everything. If you go to France today, you can still see it on the chateaus that he had built during his reign. He also adopted a crescent moon as his emblem, which is the symbol of the mythological Diana and very similar to Diane's emblem. Diane kind of deliberately cultivated this um, relationship between herself and the goddess because the goddess was, you know, the huntress, but she was also rational and cold and, you know, virginal. So Diane liked that analogy. He eventually began to allow Diane to write letters and orders on his behalf, and she would sign with both of their names combined, Henry Diane, all one word. Catherine endured this quietly. She continued to try to get pregnant to avoid getting divorced. Little did she know, Madame de Tomp, Francis's mistress, was trying to accomplish exactly that. Not because she disliked Catherine. Remember, she had taken Catherine under her wing to some extent, but because she so hated Diane that she wanted to see Diane's position destabilized by the arrival of a new, more beautiful wife for Henry. Of course, even if Madame de Tomp had succeeded in get- getting Catherine repudiated, reality is that it probably wouldn't have actually changed anything for Diane. As I mentioned earlier, Henry's love for Diane was very complicated by her role as a mother figure to him, as well as a lover. He was surrounded by any number of young, beautiful women at court, but he rarely strayed from Diane. In fact, he was so devoted to her that she had to insist that he sleep with his wife. Aware of Madame de Tomp's plot to see her unseated, Diane moved in the opposite way. She insisted that Henry keep trying to conceive with Catherine in order to preserve the status quo. If Catherine stayed, after all, there was no risk for Diane. Surprisingly, there's nothing that I've seen in the historical record about Henry divorcing Catherine in order to marry Diane. I don't know if this is because it would have been too great a scandal, or because of her age, or the fact that she also wasn't getting pregnant by Henry, but it's worth noting that Diane never seems to have tried for this option. She was ambitious, but she wasn't that ambitious. Also in Catherine's corner was King Francis. 
Though people tried to convince him to help his son divorce Catherine, especially in favor of Louise of Guise, the beautiful young daughter of the Guise family, who claimed descent from Charlemagne, Catherine, who had always had the potent combination of a good head on her shoulders, but an actor's sense of when to lean into showmanship, threw herself upon her father-in-law's favor. Literally. In front of the entire court, she sobbed at his feet, saying that she understood that the Dauphin needed children. She begged instead to be allowed to remain in France after their divorce in order to serve the next Dauphin instead of being sent to Italy. It worked perfectly. Francis had no stomach for a woman in tears, and he was impressed by her, her humility to ask to serve. Drying her tears, he said that she had become the Dauphine by God's grace, and it was beyond him to change God's will. Catherine could stay. She turned to traditional medicine immediately, which is to say, prayer. When that didn't work, Diane provided her with advice and potions. When those didn't work, Catherine turned to ancient texts by Photius and Isidore Le Physician, which contained magic and pagan recipes. Many of these cures were as bad as the problem. They included drinking a mule's urine and wearing poultices of ground stag's antlers and cow dung on her, quote, source of life. Henry was said to already be unenthusiastic in bed with Catherine. I can't imagine the stench from these poultices made him any more excited to have sex with her. She began to consult astrologists as well, which started kind of a lifelong affair with astrology. Eventually, Catherine became convinced that she was, quote, committing a fundamental error of some sort, aka, like, not having sex correctly. Though she could have asked literally anyone for advice, I mean, keep in mind, this is a very public battle with infertility that she's having. Everyone at court cared and was watching, so she really could have asked literally anyone for advice, and she probably got more advice than she asked for, but she ended up taking a more direct route. At the Chateau Fontainebleau, Catherine had holes bored into her floor so that she could peek into the bedchamber below, where Diane and Henry often spent the night together. Catherine, it should be noted, was passionately devoted to Henry and very in love with him. So going out of her way to watch her beloved husband have sex with the woman he loved more than her must have taken some amount of guts. When the time came for her to watch, she saw little. Her eyes were filled with tears when she finally turned away. But she got enough to realize that the sex she was having with Henry was very different from what he was doing with Diane. Finally, in late 1542 or early 1543, after nearly 10 childless years of marriage, a doctor named Jean Fernel was called in. He examined both the Dauphin and the Dauphine and found, quote, slight physical abnormalities in both of their reproductive organs. To every historian ever's frustration, what these supposed abnormalities were was not recorded, but he counseled them on how to overcome these abnormalities to conceive, and it worked. We also have no idea what he counseled them to do. <laughs> By the summer of 1543, Catherine was finally pregnant. Their first child, a son named Francis, was born on January 19, 1544. Astrologers predicted that he would grow up to be, quote, a strong, fit man, that he would take the church under his protection, and would have a large number of brothers and sisters. Indeed, Catherine and Henry went on to have nine more children in 12 years, seven of which survived to adulthood. Whatever Fernell told them to conceive, it as Leonie Frieda notes, Catherine surviving pregnancy and childbirth as many times as she did is a testament to her good health. The quote-unquote help that she would have received during childbirth was dubious at best. 
At the time, it was accepted practice for midwives to tear the mother's genitals to speed up dilation during a slow delivery, as well as to simply reach inside of her and yank out the placenta, both of which were of course done with unclean hands. This often caused severe blood loss, infection, and blood poisoning, which was what killed Catherine's mother. If the mother happened to survive all of that horror, she was then denied solid food for weeks, preventing healing. So Catherine surviving, like, despite all of that help she received, is, I mean, a huge testament to her own strong constitution. Unfortunately, of the seven children she had that survived to adulthood, only one inherited Catherine's own strong health, her daughter Margot. The rest all suffered from weak lungs and tuberculosis. Three of the boys, including her eldest Francis, were prone to septic sores and fits of dementia that suggest they had contracted gen genetically inherited syphilis from Catherine's father Lorenzo. This would mean that Catherine was infected too, though she's never been described as showing symptoms, which is astounding because congenital syphilis usually kills children. The few children who do survive infancy with congenital syphilis have their health severely impacted by it and usually die very young. So that Catherine would go her entire life asymptomatic seems so unlikely to me to suggest that her children didn't actually contract syphilis and had health problems stemming from something else, especially since they all survive into adulthood and Catherine never has symptoms. So either their symptoms that seem similar to syphilis are explained by something else, or maybe syphilis has gotten stronger in the last couple hundred years and kills a toast more quickly. I don't know, someone who is a medical historian, please weigh in. This is actually an interesting question to me that I can't seem to find an answer to. Now, if you thought that the arrival of a child, followed by several more, would have changed Catherine's and Diane's respective statuses in the royal family, you would be wrong, at least for a while. Diane somehow managed to take over the raising of Catherine's children. Perhaps because she had already raised two children of her own, which she'd had with her husband when she was young. Plus, Diane de France, Henry entrusted the governorship and eventually education of his children to his mistress. Diane's growing power did cause drama, though. Her rivalry with Madame de Tomp, once very cloak and dagger, had blown up into outright hostility, which was mirrored by the worsening relationship between the king and the Dauphin. De Tomp was accused of treason, including selling secrets to the emperor, an accusation that probably started with Diane. In return, it seems, Diane was banished from court by Francis in fall 1544. At, at first triumphant at Diane's fall, Catherine was soon just as punished as her rival was, because, furious with his father's decision, the Dauphin ran away from court to be with Diane at her chateau, and he didn't return for months. Keep in mind, he had an infant son at home at this time. <laughs> However, with just Catherine and Francis at court, the aging king doted on his daughter-in-law. For all that he seemed to hate Henry, he loved Catherine. She blossomed under his attention, and he showed clear favoritism by giving her jewels worth 10,000 écus that Christmas. She was pregnant again at the time, and he was present at the birth of her daughter, Elizabeth, in, in April 1545. Tragedy struck the French royal family soon after, though. Henry's younger brother, Charles, who had been Francis' favorite son, died suddenly of the plague. Francis, who had apparently been kind of refusing to train Henry in statecraft out of, like, I don't know, a misguided hope that Charles might somehow inherit, had to face facts. Henry needed to be taught how to be king. 
But by that point, Henry had no interest in listening to his father and in fact refused to attend council meetings because he, quote, did not wish to be tarnished by the misguided policies of his father when he finally ascended the throne, end quote. He also resented the influence the Madame de Tomp had over his ailing father and avoided association with her as best as he could. In fall 1546, Henry and Catherine went on their first royal progress together to visit the eastern border of France. Catherine fell seriously ill during it, and their travel had to be stopped so that she could recover. It's unclear what she became ill with. Frida mentions the strain of childbirth, but it had been almost 18 months since Elizabeth's birth at this point. Perhaps there was a miscarriage in here, though the historical record isn't clear. In any case, to have Henry caring for her, quote, with some tenderness, might have been worth getting sick to Catherine. He so rarely showed her that he cared for her at all. In 1547, King Francis's health de deteriorated aggressively. He had an abscess, quote, in his lower parts that had been cauterized two years before, but it had never really healed. Some have thought he had syphilis, though contemporary accounts claim he always remained quite lucid, though I think that's arguable if you look at his kind of like confusing and muddled policies at the time. Others suggest gonorrhea, which untreated would have created like some serious infections in his bladder and urinary tract. He also had infections in his stomach, lungs, kidneys, and throat, and it's ultimately unclear what exactly killed him. But when it became clear to him in March that he was dying, he sent for Henry and spent days talking frankly and earnestly with him about how to rule. Though probably still not loving or affectionate, Francis finally gave Henry the advice and education that he had long needed. Chief among this advice was the recommendation that Henry always remain wary of the Guise family, as well as to never, quote, submit yourself to the will of others as I have to the Duchess de Tomp. Catherine was devastated by Francis's decline. They had become genuinely close during her 13 years in France, and from him she had learned how to, quote, project the grandeur of monarchy through public celebrations and supporting arts and building projects. In fact, it was by following his example that Catherine became such a great supporter of architecture. He had shown her that projecting kind of the grandness of the monarchy was always a good idea, no matter the cost. When he died on March 31st, 1547, she swore to honor his memory through building projects and in the way that she and Henry ruled France. Now, Henry ascended to the throne at 28 years old to a pretty warm reception. In his final years, Francis's policies had not always been totally sound, and his strength and judgment had often failed him at crucial moments, especially when it came to Spain. Henry, on the other hand, was young, athletic, handsome. As the second son, he'd been out of the spotlight for most of his life, so all the people knew about him was that he was, quote, a brave soldier, a robust sportsman, and loved the hunt. He also seemed to eschew the like formal he, he also seemed to eschew the showiness and extravagance of his father. Importantly, though all of the court knew about his affair with Diane, news hadn't gotten out to the general public, who had hated Francis's affair with the Duchess. However, Henry began sowing the slow-growing seeds of disaster pretty quickly. Because his education as a ruler had been neglected, he had missed some of the finer points of managing the nobles in his kingdom, and he began playing favorites with a few. Remember Montmorency, who I mentioned briefly earlier as something as a father figure to Henry? Well, that long relationship paid dividends handsomely for this man. He held the king's signet ring and controlled what business made it to Henry's desk, usually doing a good deal of the actual work of ruling the kingdom for Henry, which annoyed basically everybody. 
Henry made Montmorency and his other favorites so wealthy and powerful that they eventually became a danger to Catherine and his own children when he died tragically. But, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Now 28 years old, Catherine was the Queen of France. Half her lifetime ago, when Pope Clement negotiated this marriage for her, he probably never could have imagined that, that this would happen. Any pride or glory Catherine might have felt, though, was probably eclipsed by Diane, who suddenly found another passion in life as soon as Henry became king, accumulating wealth and attention. <laughs> Henry gave her the right to all terre vague, lands and properties with no clear title or whose owners had died without an heir, which was an insanely huge and lucrative gift. He also gifted her the Chateau de Chenonceau, which was both property of the crown and technically not his to give, and also a property that Catherine had long, long loved and wanted for herself for years. Watching Diane lord over Chenonceau was particularly heartbreaking for Catherine, and it was one of the few times that she ever confronted Henry about his affair. In general, whenever she could, Diane pushed Catherine out of the spotlight, and Catherine spent Henry's reign mostly just being pregnant and giving birth over and over again. As French historian Pierre-Louis Roderet wrote, quote, movement went on about Catherine, but she was becalmed. Politics died at her doorstep. Her life remained purely domestic, except in the Italian matters, end quote. Again, Catherine bore all of this affair with little complaint, though perhaps she started to complain more as Diane's greed began to be the talk of the court. Catherine once wrote, quote, If I made good cheer for Madame de Valentinois, Catherine, Diane, it was the king that I was really entertaining. And besides, I always let him know that I was acting sorely against the grain, for never did a woman who loved her husband succeed in loving his whore, for one cannot call her otherwise, although the word is a horrid one to us. End quote. We can guess, though, that Catherine usually remained silent. In a surviving letter to her daughter Elizabeth much later in life, she wrote, quote, I loved him so much I was always afraid, end quote. She endured Diane to be near Henry because the alternative was to risk being sent away herself, especially at this point when she had done her quote-unquote duty and provided sons. Henry must have felt some twinge of regret about Catherine's position, though, because he decided to do something to please his wife soon after he became king. He honored her four cousins, the, the boys that she had been practically raised with, the Strozzi, who had been exiled from Florence by the authoritarian Duke Alessandro de' Medici. Alessandro, by the way, had hired someone to assassinate Catherine's beloved Ippolito in 1535, a fact she never forgot or forgave. So when the two elder Strozzi brothers, Piero and Leon, made it known that they hoped to return to Florence to throw out Alessandro, Catherine made it clear to Henry that she favored that direction. To make her happy, he advanced their military positions so that they would be in place to invade Florence when the time was right. In fact, Catherine as queen became something of a rallying figure for exiled Italians. At first, they didn't gain much from their first, you know, their fellow Italian on the French throne, but Catherine did manage to slowly, over time, use her influence to help. She imported her gowns from Italy, setting the standard for fashion at court, and she brought in Italian artists and craftsmen to influence arts and building projects. Importantly, she also brought in a lot of wealthy Italian bankers who provided Henry with loans when he decided that he, like his father before him, couldn't resist trying to conquer territory in Italy. Around this time, Catherine became very close friends with Marie Catherine Gondi, the French wife of Antonio Gondi, a fellow Florentine. They had actually met many years before when Catherine first married Henry and had maintained a correspondence. 
Now, finally in a position to reward that loyalty herself, Catherine made Madame Gandhi her personal treasurer, responsible for the general administration of Catherine's building projects and personal finances. It was an incredibly unusual position for any woman to hold in the 16th century. Catherine, generally wary of others, shared one of her few true friendships in life with Madame Gandhi. Henry's coronation as king took place on July 26, 1547. Catherine, very pregnant at the time, had no role in the coronation and must have been devastated to see Henry enter the Cathedral of Reims wearing a tunic embroidered with the repeating HD symbol honoring Diane. Among other changes, Henry's long melancholy seems to have finally lifted after his coronation. Catherine's own coronation as Queen of France was put off for nearly two years. She was finally symbolically confirmed as queen on June 10th, 1549 in Saint-Denis. The coronation is kind of an interesting tradition. Catherine sat on a throne in the cathedral and listened to opening prayers. After, she descended and knelt at the altar for an anointing with oil, which was performed by the Cardinal de Bourbon. He smudged the holy oil on her forehead and chest, then placed the ring on her finger, which symbolized her marriage to the King of Kingdom of France, and placed the scepter in one hand and the Mont de Justice in the other. Finally, the great crown, supported by Antoine de Bourbon, the Duke of Vendôme, and the Comte de Enguine, sorry, uh, was placed on her head. End quote. The crown was apparently so heavy that it was replaced almost immediately by a lighter one. She then led a procession of four princesses carrying sacred gifts, and of course, Diane de Poitiers was one of the four. But for once, she didn't outshine Catherine. After Catherine's coronation, the court went to Paris to celebrate. To, side note, today Saint-Denis is actually on the northern border of Paris, but then it was very separate. However, religious factionalism and trouble had finally reached France in, in a very open way, and that conflict cast a dark shadow over the festivities. One of the, quote, heretics, aka Lutherans or Protestants, imprisoned in Paris, had been brought before the king so that Henry could question him personally. They had brought in a humble tailor, basically hoping that he would be too stupid to be eloquent when faced with this Catholic king. The tailor surprised them, though, by having, quote, a great effect on the others gathered around him that day. Deeply Catholic and even more deeply annoyed, Diane tried to bait the prisoner with her own questions, but the man gave a response so perfect that it has survived for centuries. He said, quote, Madam, rest satisfied with having corrupted France and do not mingle your filth with a thing so sacred as the truth of God, end quote. He was referring, of course, to her affair with the king, which Catholics were quietly tolerating, but Protestants were publicly denouncing, among other things. What Catherine thought of this is unknown, but it enraged Henry so much that he sentenced the tailor to death. He attended the burning at the stake, and it's said that the tailor stared directly into Henry's eyes until he lost consciousness. The image haunted Henry for weeks, but it didn't change his approach to trying to like eradicate Protestantism in France. Meanwhile, Catherine's developing interest in astrology grew quickly after her own ascent to the throne. Though still a habitual, if not particularly passionate Catholic, she always believed in the power of the stars and often relied on celestial readings. Many astrologers were on her payroll, including the infamous Ruggieri brothers Tommaso and Cosimo. The Ruggieri family had long been patronized by the Medici family, in fact, and Catherine relied on Cosimo's talent for astrology and the, quote, black arts for a long time. 
the 16th century was a generally pretty superstitious time, and Catherine was not alone in having a huge collection of talismans and sacred relics that protected her from harm. Of course, her fascination with all of this did a lot of damage to her reputation later on during more conservative centuries. But for her time, Catherine's interest was pretty standard, and she certainly wasn't performing like any kind of like witchcraft, as her reputation would suggest. Some do say, however, that Catherine had a bit of a gift for prophecy herself, something that I'll come back to in a little while. That said, her reputation was not helped by the reputation of some people around her, including Cosimo Ruggieri and a perf perfumer remembered only as Master René, who did become infamous for his, quote, legendary poison gloves and rouge with which he is supposed to have hurried people to their deaths with when he served Catherine in her widowhood, end quote. If this sounds vaguely fantastical, like poison gloves and stuff, it's because it probably was. In summer of 1548, Henry decided it was time for him to try his hand at territorial expansion into Italy. He left for the peninsula, creating a council of five and leaving Catherine behind as his regent. This very clearly signals kind of a growing amount of respect for her and her intelligence that Henry had. In practice, she didn't actually have like that much power, but it must have felt good for her to for him to show her this sign of respect. The regency didn't last long, however, as uprisings quickly started over the salt tax that Henry had instated. Henry heard and hurried back, getting back by early September. The next month, October 1548, Mary, Queen of Scots, arrived in France. She had been engaged to Francis, Catherine and Henry's eldest son, since she was a baby, which is also about how long she'd been Queen of Scotland. Her safety was not guaranteed in Scotland, though, with, what with the ongoing conflicts with England and kind of the, the growing conflict between Catholics and Protestants, so Henry had agreed to educate and protect her in France. In France, Mary would also enjoy the protection of her mother's family, the Guise. When she arrived, Henry declared her, quote, the most perfect child I have ever seen, end quote. Like Catherine before her, Mary enjoyed a very happy relationship with her future father-in-law and was doted upon as much as any of the couple's several children. Henry wrote a glowing letter to Marie of Guise once, describing how the Dauphin and Mary had danced together at a banquet as like young children. His letters were often touching and fatherly, so she was of course sent to live with the children. For the time period, Henry and Catherine were, quote, devoted parents. As was traditional, the children were raised by a series of, like, governors who controlled their education and general care. But Catherine especially spent hours each week writing letters to their caretakers, giving detailed orders for the raising of each child and asking for news. Henry, too, often got involved, clearly trying not to treat his children the way his father had treated him. Diane, as well, was very involved, which probably continued to annoy Catherine. Now, there's something small here worth noting. Around 1550, Henry began an affair with the Lady Fleming, Mary's governess. Several people actually encouraged the affair, hoping it would get him to give up Diane once and for all, who was continuing to drain the royal coffers for her own gain. Diane, when the affair was discovered, was outraged, and she threw fit after fit about the affair, while Catherine sat back and watched quietly with amusement because she was used to this. It might have stopped there and not been worth mentioning at all if Fleming had not ended up pregnant. Alone, even that could have been contained could have been a contained scandal, except that she couldn't stop telling people that the king was the father. This was the issue, her big mouth. Since she was publicly parading her affair, Catherine had every right to throw her own fit, probably much more restrained though. 
For the first and last time, she and Diane were on the same side. They, quote, worked harmoniously together to make the king's life so intolerable that in the end he sent Lady Fleming away, end quote. And I'm only noting any of this because in 1551, Lady Fleming gave birth to a boy named Henry, Chevalier d'Angoulême. He was brought up with the other royal children, and he's remembered largely for his extreme cruelty, which would come back to reflect poorly on Catherine because of his role in St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572. I will talk more about this all in part two. Around the same time as Lady Fleming in 1551, Catherine gave birth to her third son, Edouard Alexandre, later known as Henri, Duke of Anjou. This child became Catherine's open favorite. Now, if you thought that Henry's ascension to the throne meant he'd forgotten about his captivity in Spain as a child, think again. The same emperor who had once imprisoned him was still on the throne, Charles V. Two decades later, Henry finally had an excuse to exact his revenge. Now, royal titles and dynamics are confusing, but bear with me here. Charles V, who is King of Spain and Portugal and the Holy Roman Emperor, was also the Count of Flanders. And in that role, he was technically a vassal to the King of France. So Henry had demanded that Charles come honor this role and pay allegiance to Henry at his coronation in 1547. Obviously, this was an effort to humiliate Charles, and so Charles responded to this invitation by saying that he'd be happy to, quote, but only at the head of 50,000 men to teach Henry a lesson in manners, end quote. The two continued trading insults, simmering in their resentments for a few years. In 1551, when Charles tried to bear his power down on the Farnese family in Italy to take their land, that family turned to Henry and Catherine for help. Though not technically their subjects, and therefore not someone Henry nor Catherine were obligated in any way to help, Henry couldn't resist the temptation of a fight with Charles. I mean, he'd been gearing up for it mentally and emotionally for years. Catherine encouraged him as well because she saw French intervention in Italy as a chance for her to wrest control of Florence from Cosimo de' Medici, who she disliked. This inspired Henry, who was starting to notice that his growing brood of boys would need something to do when they got older. Maybe a vassal duchy in Italy would be just the ticket for a younger Valois boy. The Strozzi brothers, who I mentioned earlier, finally had an outlet for their Italian ambitions, though Catherine would see them largely disgraced by the end of this campaign. Now, Henry had, at the time, also started paying more attention to Catherine in general. Though Diane was still a part of his life, it seems like he was starting to see that Catherine was as, quote, undemanding as she was loyal to him. He showed her such tenderness and attention that a lot of people noted it in their own personal memoirs at court. It seems like, in addition to just finally growing to love her in some measure, he also finally was realizing her own political acumen. He began to rely on her for counsel more and more, and when he declared war on Charles in 1552, he installed Catherine as regent once again. Finally, given something to do besides be pregnant, Catherine worked hard to impress Henry as his regent. She made an early mistake that would come back to haunt her, though. Hearing that some preachers were, quote, speaking seditiously in Paris, she had the city governor quietly arrest them and replace them with crown supporters. She was warned that doing so would only exacerbate the problem, but that was a lesson Catherine really had to learn the hard way. And as we'll see, Catherine often struggled to deal with the religious problems of her time, including dissent expressed by the church. Now, in March 1555, while the conflict in Italy dragged on, Catherine gave birth to a boy, Hercule. 
In June 1556, her final pregnancy tried really hard to kill her. She was expecting twin girls, who would be named Jeanne and Victoire. The first baby was born just fine, but the second failed to emerge and Catherine started to lose too much blood and to get really weak. In order to save Catherine's life, the doctors broke the dying infant's legs in utero and forcibly removed it from the womb. It seems like it had probably already died by this point, which is why the birth wasn't proceeding as normal. The other child survived the birth, but died six or seven weeks later. This birth was so difficult for Catherine that her doctors insisted that she couldn't risk ever giving birth again, thereby kind of ending that period of her life. She and Henry stopped having sex, but this didn't change how much he came to rely on her politically and emotionally. It's also worth noting that probably the doctors went to Henry for permission to perform this procedure, choosing Catherine over the baby, which, you know, I think says a lot about how much Henry probably had grown to like to love Catherine by this point. Perhaps to cheer her up after this traumatic event, Henry gifted Catherine the Chateau de Monceau-en-Brie near Paris. It was a smaller chateau, but the royal family used it occasionally. Catherine commissioned her first solo building project there. She planned to cover an alley in the gardens where Henry played Pall Mall, which is an early form of croquet. She commissioned Philibert de Lorme, a renaissance master of architecture for this project. He created a grotto built to look like natural rock where spectators could sit and watch the game. It was completed in 1558, but unfortunately it doesn't survive. In 1557, when Catherine was fully recovered from this very traumatic final pregnancy, Henry made her regent again while he was on a military campaign. He suffered defeat after defeat, and several of his top advisors and soldiers were either killed or captured. N needing money to raise and equip more soldiers, Henry wrote to Catherine in Paris, asking her to please find a way to get more money out of the Parisians, who were at the same time trying to evacuate Paris as enemy soldiers marched to them. So Catherine, once again showing her consummate skill for presentation and like a flair for the dramatic when she needed it, appeared dressed in all black with her sister-in-law Marguerite at the Paris Bureau de Ville, now called the Hotel de Ville or the Town Hall. It was her first ever significant public address, and she, quote, played her hostile and frightened audience with consummate skill. She did not command them to help her king. She appealed for their support, flattering them with her humble speech. Speaking of the peril which threatened them all, she asked the people to aid their king. They asked her to give them a moment to debate, but they literally took only a moment to return a unanimous vote to help with 300,000 livres. Throughout this process, Catherine found that she not only had serious oratory skill, but was in general kind of a good ruler. She had a talent for this sort of thing and she kind of held on to that realization. In January 1558, when the weather was traditionally considered too bad to fight wars, which seems like a really quaint limit today, Henry decided that he was going to use the element of surprise to finally recapture Calais from the English. Now, by this point, Charles V had died and his son, Philip, had become king. Philip was married to Queen Mary of England, and recapturing Calais would be a blow to both of them. The attack worked. France regained control of Calais and the entire court celebrated. Now, Henry had long been withholding the marriage of his son Francis to Mary, Queen of Scots, as something of like motivation for the Guise family to be loyal to him. And we see some of that in that TV show, Rain, if, if you've ever watched it. To thank them for their loyalty in fighting at Calais, he finally allowed Francis and Mary's uh, wedding to happen. They were married in Paris on April 24th of 1558, which was a moment of great joy for Catherine. It was the first of her children's weddings. 
It was noted, however, how sickly the Dauphin appeared. At the ceremony, his face was swollen and his nose ran constantly, something which probably worried Catherine in equal measure. As a nod to this kind of cemented alliance with Scotland, the teen bride and groom were henceforth referred to as the Queen Dauphine and the King Dauphin. The celebrations were short-lived, however. A few disastrous losses led to a disastrous treaty and the end of Henry's Italian ambitions. Catherine is said to have begged him not to ratify this treaty and blamed Diane for influencing him negatively in his decisions around this time. Nevertheless, he ratified and began to focus his attention on the interior of the realm again. Henry became ever more interested in, quote, eliminating the Protestant vermin from his realm, end quote. He began what basically kind of amounts to a witch hunt, arresting and occasionally executing people with Protestant leanings. Catherine watched this quietly, learning all the wrong lessons from it. <laughs> Around this time, the Venetian envoy to the French court, Giovanni Capello, gave an account of Catherine as she approached her 40th birthday. He said, quote, her dress was always magnificent and her manner regal, though he then followed that with the old complaint that she wasn't pretty enough. Quote, her mouth is too large and her eyes too prominent and colorless for beauty, but a very distinguished looking woman with a shapely figure, a beautiful skin, and exquisitely shaped hands. Her manners are charming and she has a pleasant smile or a few well-chosen words for each of her guests. End quote. Throughout her life, Catherine had continued her love of riding and hunting and spent a fortune on her horses and stables. She was described as, quote, a very good and fearless horsewoman, sitting with ease and being the first to put her leg around a pommel. Until she was over 60, she loved riding, and after her weakness prevented her, she pined for it, end quote. While out riding, she usually carried a crossbow with her in case she came across game, and she used it with considerable skill. Catherine loved riding because she always had, but it also began to hold special significance to her as the one place that Diane would not be an interloper between Catherine and Henry. For all that Diane liked to pretend that she was Diana the goddess hunter, she was fearful of getting too much sunlight and darkening her complexion so she didn't go out. Their marriage steadily improved in the late 1550s. Henry began spending an hour or so alone with Catherine every night before he went to bed. The pattern of doting on her continued, and he often went to her for political counsel. Unable to have sex with her for risk of pregnancy and his 60-year-old mistress losing interest in sex herself, Henry began to go to prostitutes for the rest of his life. Catherine, surprisingly, didn't seem to mind this. She did continue to mind Diane's continued presence in his life, though. As her children one by one kind of entered their teen years, Catherine nurtured ambitions for important dynastic marriages for each of them. After the death of Queen Mary of England, she was pleased to marry her daughter Elizabeth to the widowed Philip of Spain as part of the like ongoing treaties between France and Spain post kind of their whole war. This probably felt like a crowning achievement to her. Philip was part of the Habsburg dynasty, one of the most famous of all the European royal families. For her quote-unquote lowly merchant blood to be mingling with the Habsburgs through her daughter must have felt really like empowering and affirming for her. Now, for this wedding, a somewhat strange tradition was celebrated. Philip had not come to Paris himself, declaring it improper for Spanish kings to go fetch their wives. So he sent a proxy, Fernando Alvarez de Toledo, Duke of Alba. Now, proxy weddings in and of themselves are not weird or surprising. That happened a lot, especially with royal marriages. But after the wedding ceremony, Fernando and Elizabeth laid in bed next to each other, each with one leg naked. They rubbed their feet together, and the marriage was declared consummated. Which is maybe the wildest marriage custom I've ever heard. Anyway, their wedding by proxy was celebrated with several days of feasts and jousts, Henry had never seemed happier. 
But as the morning of June 30th dawned, Catherine was incredibly anxious. As I mentioned, Catherine was a big believer in the occult. By this point, she kept the famous Nostradamus at her core and was known to consult other seers and astrologists. They had all made her nervous going into this joust. Seven years before, in 1552, Luca Giorco, the resident astrologer of the Medici family, had warned that Henry needed to be extra careful during his 40th year to, quote, avoid all single combat in an enclosed space because he'd be risking a wound that could blind or even kill him. In 1555, Nostradamus had included the following prophecy in his publication, Centuries. Quote, the young lion will overcome the old in a field of combat in a single fight. He will pierce his eyes in a golden cage, two wounds in one. He then dies a cruel death. End quote. Then, on the night of June, Thursday, June 29th, 1559, Catherine had a foreboding dream. Henry was laid out on the ground with his face covered in blood. Now again, people had kind of been saying that Catherine had a bit of a gift for prophecy, so it's no surprise that she was, quote, noticeably anxious the next morning when Henry suited up to join the jousting. Henry mounted his horse wearing a gold helmet and visor. His horse was named Malraux, which means unhappy, which seems prophetic too, given what happens next. In his first run against his opponent, Gabriel, Count de Montgomery, the king was nearly knocked from his horse. The Count begged to be allowed to resign, clearly nervous that he was going to hurt the King. Catherine sent word down, begging Henry not to ride again. Even his groom allegedly begged the King to stop. I mean, this is a big risk to injure the King, right? So, however, Henry told everyone assembled that continuing was, quote, an order, and they rode again. On the second run, Henry didn't even wait for the trumpet call that should have signaled the start. He and Montgomery thundered down the course toward each other, and Henry was struck. The Duke de Montmorency and the Duke of Guise rushed forward, catching Henry before he fully fell off his horse. They found his visor already half open and blood pouring out of his face. Wooden splinters of, quote, a good bigness protruded from his eye and temple. Horrified, the Count of Montgomery begged to be executed for hurting the king's person. Henry, good-natured about it as he had become about most things since his coronation, insisted that Montgomery had done nothing but follow orders. The king was carried inside and the Dauphin, who had fainted at the sight of his father's injuries, was carried up behind him. Henry was put in bed where he, quote, immediately tried to clasp his hands in prayer and strike his chest in contrition for his sins. It was as if he was already preparing for death. End quote. Now, he was of course treated, but I can't say much for the wound care he was given. They applied refrigeratives, though what that actually means is unclear to me. The wound was dressed with raw egg white, which seems unsanitary by today's standard. But I guess as we saw with the dung poultices Catherine had used herself 15 years before, this is par for the course. <laughs> Catherine kept vigil by his bed, though she seemed to be in a state of shock. He suffered for 10 days in and out of lucidity. At some points, he asked for music and even dictated letters, but he also was often unconscious and in great pain. Catherine barred Diane from entering the room. As Frida points out, quote, Catherine had shared her entire married life with Diane, but these last moments belonged to her alone. The wound worsened steadily, affection eventually settling, setting in. 
Various treatments were discussed and abandoned. It just, it became clear that there was nothing anyone could do. Catherine split her time between Henry's deathbed and the room where Francis wept and knocked his head against the wall in his fear and grief. As Henry, you know, lost his vision, he requested that the Dauphin sit with him. And like his father before him, he gave the Dauphin all the advice he could muster in his final hours. He then requested that Catherine take care of his kingdom. He, quote, commended to her his kingdom and his children. He died the next day, July 10th, at around 1 p.m., leaving Catherine as queen mother and their teen son Francis as king. And that is where I'm going to leave things for now. I'll pick up part two with Catherine's work as regent, including the lengths she went to in order to protect three successive kings of France, and how she earned her dangerous moniker, the Serpent Queen. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unruly Figures. If you did, please tell a friend about it. You can also let me know your thoughts by following me on Twitter and Instagram as Unruly Figures, or by joining us over on Substack. If you have a moment, please give this show a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. Thanks for listening. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Thank you.